0: And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. My name is Crystal Fleming and it's a pleasure to have you today. I want to take a minute to read the advert for the Time Guardian Book 4 series called The Shadow by Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won, the prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan struggling to cope with tra- loss at odds with friends in the guard he finds himself adrift jumping at shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there blaming herself for the goddess Latina's death Giselle swears revenge and fulfill the immortal's plan for world domination but Giselle hadn't planned on love and that leaves her with an unbearable choice should she follow her heart or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation who continues to pull her from the grave as the guard and the order battle through the past and into an impossible future, darkness lurks around every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Rao, uh, which is one of her Roman crime series, is being um, having its, sort of, a lot of its profits um, and all costs of it. Uh, are being donated to the Ukraine crisis including her agents uh, commission so with that being said I have the delightful honor of introducing you to somebody I admire greatly who's changing who changed my life um, by reading her book when I was in my late teens um, an early adult and uh, yeah I just I can't wait to share this woman with you she really opened my eyes to a different style of writing and something that i really i really enjoyed so without further ado i'd like to introduce you to rj anderson and everyone now is my great pleasure to introduce you to the woman who actually introduced me to fairies um fairy books for the very first time in my life so everyone put your hands together for rj anderson so welcome
1: Happy to be here.
0: <laughs> so uh, here at the Book and Life podcast, um, we like to make you all feel it's, at home like this. is just all of us in a coffee shop having a cup of coffee and, a, you know, as, as friends. So we're very excited to have you here. And uh, yeah, I, it's amazing. And I I read your first book, Knife. Um, that was my introduction. I don't know if I could remember it now cause I've read so much <laughs> since then. But I loved it, and I remember it being my first introduction to fairies. And then I went on and I read the Tattoo Fairy series, and I can't remember who wrote that, but it was really good, and it just sort of expanded my love into fairies, because my nickname was Pixie, so Hmm. I was was always trying to find stuff that kind of tied in with my nickname.
1: Ah. Well, my latest trilogy ties in with that, because it's about Cornish Piskies, so...
0: Yeah, I noticed, I noticed that, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll have to like try and find that in print. That would be awesome. So um, I'd love to hear about the Flight and Flame trilogy, especially Torch, because you said that's your latest one, is that right? Yes,
1: yes. Um, that trilogy has a very interesting history in that I wrote the first two books, Swift and Nomad, um, for my British publisher, Orchard Books, back in okay. 2012 and 2014 and they were at that time only available in the UK because my fairy books, my first three fairy books, Knife, Rebel and Arrow had done very well over there and so my publisher wanted more so I wrote those two books um, but um, with one thing and another as publishing is wont to go um, the, f- the second trilogy that I wrote uh, about fairies, these um, books about a Cornish Pisky girl who lives with her people in an abandoned tin mine in Cornwall and her adventures did not sell as well as my publisher had hoped. So I had wanted to make it a trilogy, but they kind of dropped things after the second book. And I knew that was coming, so I did my best to make the ending of the second book, Nomad, as satisfying as I could. But I was always aware and I knew my readers would be aware, too that it was not totally finished. So I had readers writing me for the next seven years saying, where is the third book? I really want to know what happens to Ivy and Martin. I'm dying here. And I'm like, so am I. But I have to write other books that I know I can actually sell. So in that time, I wrote another uh, duology um, that was published, uh, Pocket Full of Murder and A Little Taste of Poison, that were magical murder mysteries. Um, And I saw
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was super excited about that.
1: I was like, "Ha!" Yes. They were inspired by Dorothy L. Sayers. And I wanted to write sort of middle grade version of the Lord yeah. Peter Wimsey books. So uh, I did those and that worked out very well, but I still had my heart back in Cornwall with my Piskies wanting to finish that story. So I finally decided, look, even if I have to self-publish it, I'm going to do it for my readers. And so yes. I wrote that book. Um, but then fortunately I was able to get in touch with um, Enclave Publishing, who had done a lovely job of reprinting my first three fairy books um, for the U.S. market. And uh, they bought the rights to Swift and Nomad um, and also to the third book, Torch, which had had never been published before at that point. So I was finally able to publish that book and it came out last year. And uh, it was just lovely to hear from people that had grown up with my books and now were adults but had been eagerly waiting for this book, um, Torch. And uh, it was a, a very gratifying response. So I was happy that I was finally able to complete that story.
0: Yeah, it must. I mean, you say that, you know, um, about self-publishing and how you considered it. It is strange because there is a lot more of these mainstream authors who maybe the series doesn't go quite to plan. And they're like, oh, well, what am I going to do? You know, the, the readers really want this. And they are self-publishing. It's not got as big a stigma to it now as I Definitely would say it not. Once had. Yeah. yeah.
1: I know some fantastic self-published authors who I would put up against any traditionally published author any day of the week, but they chose yeah. to go the indie route for their own reasons. Um, for me, and, that and some... was not as desirable just because of the amount of work and expense on my end to put yes. into all the things that I'm not really interested in. Um Exactly. I would like to write the book, hand it over to a publisher, have them take care of the rest, and then I can go oh, on I to write the blame next you for book. That. Yeah. yeah. But I, I d- really respect yeah. and admire those who are out there doing their own, you know, cover designs and promotion and, and getting their own editors and all that stuff. I I have read some very, very good quality self published works in the last couple of years and I've been very impressed.
0: And I'm so glad to see the market changing because it's almost like you don't want to lose those voices. No,
1: you, know you I don't. I mean. like, That's right. I'm and publish- traditional publishing can be very restrictive in what it yes. thinks the market wants and miss that there is a large audience for something mm-hmm. that they think is a trend that played out 10 years ago. You know, kids still love books yep. about pirates. And you have children's book editors saying, oh, no, pirates were so, you know, 2004 or whatever. Um, yeah. There, there is still a large market for vampire romance, but you still have publishers saying, "Oh no, no, that went out with Twilight," and so on. Well, yes. the market is there; it's just, you know, the readers want to find it. So, it's, uh, I'm glad oh, that indie publishing exists for that reason.
0: And I mean, it's 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 so strange that you say that because I went and I wrote Carla, and they told me it was too Hollywood. This huh. was this was a traditional publisher. I got told it's too Hollywood. It's not going to sell. And I said okay. And I took it to an indie publisher, and it it did okay, you mm-hmm. know. But it is very hard to kind of break through and you know get people to realize, you know, that this exists or whatever. Because marketing in indie is is extremely difficult. But I I had a tiny group of people who said. Oh, Crystal, we adore this story. Why don't you write the second one? And the reason I haven't written the second one is because money.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: is very, very expensive.
1: Well, that's um, the problem, and especially
0: yeah. since I walked away from the indie publisher who was trying to put these god awful covers on it. <laughs> um, and it, that was simply—I know that was just simply pride, you know. Because I'm like, well, that—that's not going to work, yeah. you know. Th- those covers. Well, I mean, the, the authors,
1: the authors' input, and the authors considerations matter too and I think sometimes Mm -hmm. the author's sensibilities kind of get down at the bottom of the heap because there's a perception that authors are kind of prima donnas they don't really know what's going to work for but when you see a bad cover as a reader you know it and you know I have seen rough covers for my books that I just went that is not going to appeal to my readers that is going to Mm -hmm. give them totally the wrong impression of my book and so I've had to sort of just sort of tactfully explain that to my publisher in a way that explains that they are probably going to lose money on this book if they put that cover on as opposed to but you got her hair color wrong you know which they don't care about um but if you explain to them that this is going to affect the marketing then they usually listen and so I've had to do that a couple Mm -hmm. of times where I've said um that cover is beautiful but not for my book because it, it it gives a totally wrong impression of what the book is about.
0: Exactly, and I think for, for me, I didn't want to fight her, and I didn't realize she'd done the cover herself. Right. So I was so I felt so bad of having to say, "Look, these covers are awful. They don't fit in with what my story's about." I said, for instance, it's a YA. You've got this woman half naked.
1: Oh goodness!
0: It's it's just it's not it's not what's going to bring the readers in for this particular yeah.
1: the readers who are the right fit for this book will not yeah. be drawn to that cover.
0: No. And no. and it was almost like I was being you know, she did treat me like I was being a pre donna. Yeah. But I wasn't because I knew my co my co author who really didn't have a lot of input, you know, he was just sort of on it because we'd been working on other things and he'd given me a couple of bits of input. Um, even he said, Oh jeez, no. Like what is she thinking? <laughs> and then we discovered that my, my the agent I had at that time had actually signed a contract on our behalf using copy and paste. Like, she'd copied and pasted my oh, uh, dear. signature onto That's the definitely
1: um, not good, no.
0: No. And I, I that was that was the moment I said, Look, I think I think I should should just go. Mm. Um, you know, go our separate ways here. You know, um, I just don't think this is a very good idea and, uh, I don't regret it. Mm -hmm. I miss that publisher because I had lots of really good experiences with them, but yeah, I, I, I just,
1: I sometimes wonder if I did the right thing.
0: Yeah. Like I do sometimes wonder. I,
1: I, from what you've told me, it seems like there was a lot of red flags there. I don't think you made the wrong decision.
0: (laughs) No, and it, you know, it was, it was it was weird because um they had started off loving all my stuff and understanding, okay? You know, the stuff coming from Crystal is not going to be perfect. It is going to require a lot of editing because she has got dyslexia and, and and one thing and another. To to them not being understanding about it. Right. Um and that was kind of when I realized, ha, huh, things have changed. They're going to have to be a bit more careful with, you know, what i do now right um and it's sad because i don't think any author should really have to feel that uncomfortableness mm-hmm. of offending somebody because they think they're doing the right thing mm-hmm. for the readers and for the market and that that you know because not everyone can see everything we all make mistakes yeah um you know and i i yeah i always kind of felt like eh, maybe <laughs> i should have not i think a lot of and... authors
1: especially women authors I would say yeah. mostly women authors are deeply concerned about the feelings of the people they work with in publishing. Yes. Um, which is, I would agree is lovely, that. is lovely and, and is, you know, makes you a more pleasant person to work with than some of the people who think they're entitled to everything. But I think there is a balance and I think we do have to stand up for ourselves in a nice way um, yes. and advocate for ourselves because often um, we don't have the advocate that we really need even in our agents, uh, there can be, uh, a, you know, the agent wants to make the sale. The agent wants to maintain a good relationship with the editor and the publisher because they want to sell them more books. So sometimes it becomes kind of the author against everyone, um, not wanting to be against everyone, but they're the only ones who are really standing up for themselves. And if you're not willing to do that, um, it can, you can end up getting really taken for a ride. So I think it is important for authors to sort of have the courage of their convictions um, to be flexible to a degree, but also to know like this is too important to me for me to just let it slide. Um,
0: yeah. And I, I think I think it's good because people can come on to these podcasts and they can hear this kind of conversations and be like, oh, OK, you know, it's, it's OK for me to not feel comfortable with this. It's OK yes. for me to talk up about this, because I think there it's almost like a a worry, too, that, oh, if I speak up and I offend, maybe they won't take any of my stuff in the future. Right, or, right. But, you know, I mean, it's...
1: if your work is good enough, yeah, um, they, they will put stuff. up with a lot of bad behavior, as we have seen yes. sometimes from successful authors. If your work yes. is good enough, um, they will they will put up with some mistakes. And I myself have made mistakes along the way. Where I had to get a stern phone call from my agent, especially when I first started out and didn't sort of know how the business worked, um, yep. had to sort of admonish me about certain things, and I learned. Um, mm-hmm. But overall, I don't think the average author is is a problem, and yeah. I think we we have more leeway in that regard than we than we know. And it's it's always good to be if you have an agent. It's always good to be in touch with your agent about how you're feeling about things and, you know, what can Mm -hmm. we do about this? Because a good agent should be an advocate for you. But if not, if you have other, like, if you have contacts, if you have friends who are published Mm -hmm. authors, it's always good too to run things by them and say, like, what did you do or what would you do in this situation? Because – there are some very knowledgeable and helpful authors out there who have been through these kinds of things, and they've said, Well, yeah. I handled it in this way, I handled it in that way. And I do that for some of my author friends who are a little, find it a little harder to say no than I do, or yeah. find it hard to express a nice no than I do. Uh, the other week, I was talking to a dear author friend who is a brilliant author, and yes. uh, she was just trying to sort of nicely do something related to her career. And I just sort of gave her a template, like say this, this, and this. And she was like, Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So yeah, you can be be very helpful. Yeah.
0: You know, I, have I'm really lucky because I know such a range of authors from crying to children's that, you know, sometimes they'll say to me, Oh, cause I was thinking, I don't know what, I don't know how to approach this. I, you Mm -hmm. know, I don't want to, don't want to offend. Um, and I've even reached out. Like, I mean, I'm I'm working with a fantastic author who's coach, she coaches on the side. Right. And she says, look, I'll coach you through this. And she said, you know, because I had this the most heartbreaking rejection from Melissa Boone um, for a series I thought was absolutely perfect for them. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, you know, don't worry about it. There's, you know, uh, we've got other options, you know. And yeah. she was really good. And she really grinded me. And she said, just keep your head down and keep running. Yep. You know, don't don't let it mean that you stop writing that book and you just forget about it because you think it's not going to work, it's not going to sell. Mm-hmm. And just finish it, finish your midwifery series and move, keep moving. Well, and, I certainly
1: uh, kind of went through an experience like that with Knife, actually, because I first wrote it when yeah. I was 23, which was 1993, um, which yep. is actually the year in which the book is set. Um, but I Very didn't handy. get it published for another 15 years. But I mean, I believed in that book. I believed in those characters. I believed in that world. I believed in the premise of the story, even if I could see from the feedback that I was getting that it wasn't quite there yet. And I did eventually end up completely rewriting that book twice. Same world, same characters, same very basic plot, but a lot of the surrounding details and, and the way I handled the story changed completely. Yeah. Um, before that book got published but if I hadn't believed in that story and the potential of that story to sell if I hadn't believed that it was different from anything that was out there and that I had something to say with it um, I could have given up and moved on to something else but I, I didn't and I'm glad so
0: yeah you sometimes need to to, to feel that strength within yourself to just mm-hmm. say this this is something that's going to work and it's funny because when you came on uh, when I wrote the Orchid Guild, and I mean it, uh, you'll love it because it's, you know, Celtic mythology invades Reading, California. Ah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it it's different, you know, because you've got Selkies, and you, you know, that's something that we never really see in mythology based fantasy novels because Selkies, unless you've lived in Scotland your whole life, you don't necessarily, or in Norway and Denmark and that kind of region, you don't really know what a Selkie is. Um, so, I, you know, I explored that, and I explored vampirism in a different way, and I explored angel in a, you know, angels in a different way, and power in a different way, and maybe, you know, Welsh witches in a different kind of, a different viewpoint, and I put it together, and everyone kept saying to me, the book's too long, the book's too long, the book's too long, so I cut it, and, uh, so now instead of it being a three book series it's going to probably end up being a six book series mm. size wise right. and you're probably the only reason that I think the Arctic Guild is still going because I really believe in Susie and I really believe in Taylor and Lance it's got that love that you you find in a lot of the successful novels like you could say oh they've got the same kind of relationship as Twilight you could also say well there's the same sort of feelings as you would find in vampire diaries or you'd find it but it is completely different because it's completely different mythology it's a completely different adventure and quests it's it's taken in a different route um yeah so like as as you're as i was saying to you like i think i i would have quit because i had a lot of people tell me you know this isn't gonna work and you know your dyslexia is too bad and we you know we, we we don't want to put the money in to edit it and stuff but I haven't given up and I've I've got a lovely gentleman who's uh, shopping it right now and he he's been on this show and he's absolutely determined that he's going to find the right place for it and he's going to get it sold um, and it's nice to have an advocate like that he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't represent anything else but that book and it is nice because I feel I feel like somebody else believes in the story too
1: right. you know
0: and I think it's important. I mean, yes, that that's definitely somewhere. I
1: think an important part of the writing process as well to have cheerleaders who you support those. you and encourage you to keep going who who understand what you're trying to do and who like it as opposed to people that you might You know, try and find beta readers or critique partners or so on that they may not really get what you're trying to do or they might try to change it into something that's more to their tastes. But if you find someone who's a good match for your work because they already like the things you've written and they get what you're trying to do and they can just be there to support you and say, you know... I believe in this book. I believe in you. I believe, you know, even if they have no power to sell it for you or anything of that sort. Yeah. Again, I have a couple of, of lovely author friends, um, with whom I exchange chapters of my work in progress and they share theirs with me and we just cheer each other on as opposed to yeah. giving that very critical feedback, which is necessary, but comes later in the process. I find it hard to get through the first draft. Um, to Same. me, that is the hardest part. So mm-hmm. to have someone who's just reading it chapter by chapter and going, oh, wow, you know, that's really exciting. I wonder what will come next or, you know, oh, I'm just I can't wait for the next chapter. Even something just yeah. as simple as that can keep you going when you would otherwise feel, like, discouraged and, and inclined to give up, so.
0: And that's the thing. I haven't really kind of found a group that I could do that with my fantasy work. I have a lovely woman who's, as I said, coaching me for my romance stuff. But fantasy where my heart is. Like, mm-hmm. YA is where I love to be. So, like, I... I feel alone when I try and write that stuff because I don't have that group of cheerleaders that I can fit in with and I can read their stuff and they can read mine Do you know what I mean? and have that camaraderie because I'm not hooked into that world. Right. And, you know, I've, I've done sports romance for so many years that it's, it's almost like I only know that little portion of people mm-hmm. in, in that way. Yes. And then I, I know crime in that way, but I haven't written any crime. I have just cheered them along. And so, yeah, I don't really have anyone in that world and I don't have anyone that I could turn around and say, Hey, do you want to read this fantasy thing I've written? Um, <laughs> you know, I, and it sounds started because I am friends with Marianne Curley and I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Celia Reese, but it is different kind of, they don't do cheerleading. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I always, I'm always on the lookout for somewhere that I can maybe slot in and just have that cheerleading spot, but I haven't found mm-hmm. anywhere yet. So <laughs> I will be keeping an eye out for what you say and finding somebody that can, can cheer mm-hmm. me along and, and things like that. And the, and the great thing about this podcast is I get to meet so many different people that maybe I can find that space. Um, cause I think it's really important.
1: Yes. To, definitely.
0: Yeah. So moving into the book portion of the podcast, um, what's the book that you've read recently that you would say has stuck with you the most?
1: Well, it's interesting because a book I read just a few weeks ago, um, it actually has a very strong Scottish connection. Um, It's written by a Canadian author of historical fiction, um, historical romance, named Susanna Kearsley. And her latest book, The Vanished Days... Uh, is a story that takes place in the Borders and uh, deals with the the Jacobite Rebellion and so on. So uh, she has written a number of books set in Scotland as well. So this is tied to some of her other books, so it can be read alone. But I loved, I mean, she's a wonderful author anyway, and exhaustively historically researched. She used to be a museum curator, so she knows her stuff. But what I loved most about the book is there is a twist in the story that... I mean, I knew there would be twists and turns as there are in any story, but this is a big twist. And I I did not see it coming at all, but when it came, it made perfect sense of everything that had kind of nagged at the back of my mind, like, why did that person do that? Or, oh, I don't quite like that, earlier in the book, but hadn't thought it was a flaw in the story, just something that didn't quite sit right with me. But when this Mm -hmm. twist happened, it made sense of everything, and I went, ah. It was wonderful. And so I thought about that book. I just, you know, kept coming back and rereading the bit where she sort of unveiled the twist. And I'm like, this is so good. So good. So I love that book because I felt like it was a great learning experience for me to see how other authors handled big twists like that, because I have something like that that I'm trying to pull off in my work in progress. And uh, so it was very enjoyable as a reader and informative as a writer.
0: And just me, I think when it comes to big twists, you'll have no problem with pulling it off. <laughs> From what I read of your stuff, you you just have that natural—I like to say, like pep, like pop—with your mm-hmm. writing. So, like a big twist to me would just you would build it and build it and build it, like you know, a good, good melted hot chocolate, and then all of a sudden <laughs>
1: twist. I like that analogy. You know, there's a
0: crunchy in the middle or something. <laughs> you know, it's just a little bit that of peppermint way. in there. Yeah. Yeah, like just, you know, and I used to, funnily enough, I used to make hot chocolate by melting actual chocolate and then putting milk and double cream in it and then pouring it into a cup with a big swizzle of whipped cream on top. And, and my friends used to love that. They said, mm. oh, those are the best hot chocolates you could make. Oh,
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. I love hot chocolate. If
0: you had infinite amount of time and you could just sit and you could actually just enjoy reading like you're not reading for research or study or whatever you could just enjoy it for what it is who right? so you get a a series an author to pick from but it has to be two separate authors like kind of to, like uh,
1: the same author for a series as oh, the I see. That you would read. So just sit okay. down and just read through a whole series, um, and then yeah. I have to pick a another author who may or may not have written a series. Yeah. I would say if I had an infinite amount of time I would again reread, although it's more like a re 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 read, um <laughs> the Atolia books by Megan Whalen Turner. Uh the thief, oh, okay. the Queen of Atolia, The King of Atolia, Conspiracy of Kings. Thick as Thieves and Return of the Thief is her most recent, which just came out last year. And I would love to just read the whole series through again from beginning to end because I've only read the last book once, but I've read the other ones multiple times. And I just love how um, rich that series is in characterization and in just subtle um, clues and twists and things. And I mean, she's just a wonderful writer. So I would, I would certainly like to sit down and re-savor that series. As far as an author goes, um, to just sit with a pile of their books and just kind of work my way through them. Um, I think I'm going to say uh, C.S. Lewis, um, just because he wrote such a wide range of things. So you yeah. could, if you were tired of a particular, you know, okay, I've had enough of the children's fantasy now, I've read through Narnia, um, you can pick up one of his theological works, or you could pick up one of his science fiction novels, or you could read some of his yeah. poetry or some of his essays. Um, he wrote so much, and uh, I enjoy his writing style in sort of every form, so that mm-hmm. would be a a nice project to curl up with.
0: So I sort of kind of, when I, when I knew I was coming on to speak to you, I was like, I wonder if she's read sort of Kelly Armstrong because that's a really good I have met
1: Kelly and I've done events with her and she is a lovely lovely person um do you like her work I have not read any of her work (gasps) I keep meaning to I keep meaning to as having you know she writes urban fantasy And up until very recently, I did not think I liked urban fantasy. I had read some of it. I did not love it. So I wasn't seeking it out. And so I was like, I bet she writes excellent urban fantasy, but that's not really my cup of tea. So there were always other things I wanted to read more. However, very recently, I have become obsessed with the City Between series by W.R. Gingell, who is an urban fantasy author who lives in Hobart, Tasmania. And I love her books. And I would Actually, I would love to reread that series, her 10-book series, um, yeah. and I just read it last year. So um, maybe I do like urban fantasy more than I thought, so I should probably give Kelly's works a try. I'm sorry, Kelly.
0: <laughs> yeah, because it's like, a bit in, I watched the TV series of Benton, and I thought, hmm, because I, I was a big Tunable fan, so I was like, hmm, and then I actually read her books, her first two, and I was just like, oh, the books are so much better. Like, the, the series just didn't give it justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I am I'm getting really into her because I, like you, I was like, I don't know if I like urban fantasy. I like fantasy, but I don't know if I like urban fantasy. But I gave it a try because I'd seen the yep. TV series, and I was like, okay, well, I'll give the boat series a try because, you know. And I ended up really liking it. And the other one I, I strangely thought of when I was reading it of you was um, Maggie Stiefyr's.
1: Oh, Maggie Stiefvater. I love her work. Actually, I blurbed her second book, which I find hilarious now oh, because really? at the time I was very slightly better known than she was when she wrote Ballad. Yeah. I loved Lament, and I wrote to her, and right. she was just with a small press at the time. She was with Flux. I wrote to her and said, I loved, loved, loved this book, and she said, Well, I've got another one. And since you are yep. published with HarperCollins, which at the time was a more prestigious thing, she was like, would you be willing to read and blurb Ballad? And I read it and I absolutely adored it. And I blurbed it enthusiastically. And that was the last time that I got to blurb Maggie Stiefvater because she is now vastly more popular than I am, but I adore her work. <laughs> I, uh... I would
0: say you two are still on level. I'm sorry. I think you're <laughs> both exceedingly talented and you're on oh, the same level. You. And it, it's weird because I, I kind of came to her later. Um, and I read, or I'm currently making my way through this, the Shiver series, the wearable right.
1: series. Right, right. Yeah.
0: And I, you know, so many people had, had said it was awful. And I think they had compared it to like Twilight and Kelly's work. And so I was a bit sort of iffy about kind of wandering into that world to, you know, because you, you do end up with a lot of these negative kind of thoughts in your head. And I thought, no, no, I'm going to try it. And I actually have ended up loving it because it's
1: yeah.
0: it's such so, so well done, and it's softly done, and it's not mm-hmm. yeah. It's the, not the cool Shiver theory. series it's is not... sort of
1: the slightly more commercial end of Maggie. I actually love yeah. Maggie's literary stuff, like the Scorpio Races um, and yeah. her Raven Boys quadrilogy. Um,
0: you know that she kind of, yeah,
1: she kind of leaned into the more literary and and you know, folkloric elements in in the writing. And she, as a prose stylist, she's superb. And um, she is. So she I just find like that him. very satisfying because I do love good prose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So see, I I knew we would have some people sort of a, <laughs> on par with each other. Um, yeah. because I was like, oh, I wonder if she's also like, because I went through a, a Sarah Sarah J. Mass. Uh, period and I actually started reading her before she took off mm-hmm. so like I read Throne of of Glass just as it was coming out and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I it was kind of everywhere you know it was like the series was huge um and I felt like I wish she'd kept it young adult I wish she mm-hmm. hadn't gone into adult right. I think that kind of ruined it for me hmm. I think it would have been nice if she'd stayed in Young Adults but I understood her characters needed to grow up and adventure into more but that that is like you're kind of almost travelling through several different worlds for that one mm-hmm. so you have sort of the Sassany style and then you have her going in living in the castle and then you have the politics of the castle but you also have this you end up meeting these witches that are you know one side's good one side's evil and and she really is really good at combining all these worlds into, like, one place. So it really is, like, a, I would say a high concept fantasy world. Right. Um, which was quite nice. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think, in a way, you would enjoy it. Um, I just, some of the adult elements, I just think, ruins it. But... Other than Yeah, that, it's I a really I, good, good I started world.
1: reading Throne of Glass again around the same time probably you did, that it was just starting to take off in terms of, yes. you know, people. And so it was one of these things where I was like, mm, I should be aware of this since it's starting to become a thing and I want to know what yeah. she did. Um, it was not for me. So no. I have not read any more of her books. Um, I was just not the yeah. right reader for what she's doing, but obviously she's very popular. So
0: She is. I mean, she has, she's done fantastically with the series and she's gone on and she's done sort of really good with um with her sort of court of Thorns and Roses series and and I think she she will be one of these authors that I think will be very prolific and we will probably be talking about her for a very very long time to come um but she, she you know she's very interesting in her ideas um especially taking us sort our of fairy tale setting like she did and putting a new spin on it, I think. I think it was very um, ambitious, and she, she, I think she rolled the dice with it, and I think she got really lucky. It, it, it did as well as it did. Have you tried um, Victoria Aveyard?
1: I have not read any of her books yet. No, yeah, I am aware of her quite stuff. Good.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, you know, the, the, she's got a very. She reminds me of you. It's very smooth. It's oh. like as smooth as glass. Her writing. <laughs> And enjoy- such such an enjoyable experience. Um, that that's funny
1: that you should say that because one of the early um earliest feedback I got on um, knife once I had an agent, um, it was one of the nicest rejections that I ever got for that book, which oh. is why I've still remembered it. Is uh, was from an editor um, at one of the American publishing houses who said, uh, "Her prose is just so darn smooth." <laughs> So for you to say that too, I'll have to accept that that is is how my prose comes across. I often wish I could sit back and read my prose the way that I read other authors' prose and see it. Objectively, because I would like to see you know where I can improve or where I can and and I just can't. I'm always seeing it with a very sort of critical eye of oh I wish I'd used this word there and I'm very picky about my you, words you, you and my rhythm you can't and my read sentences. Your word back. No, yeah. you can't. It's a shame, but um, it, I unless I let unless that. I let it sit long enough that I've forgotten it and then I go back and mm-hmm. read it and I'm like who this is good. <laughs> who was this person? <laughs> I do that.
0: I do that with my own. Like I mean, I write something and then I purposely. I'll put it in a folder to be edited, right? Yep. So that I forget it so that I can write whatever yes. it is that I'm doing. And I do that so that I forget it. So that when yep. I go to read it, I can get the dislike. I can try and catch as much of the dyslexia as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as the grammar issues that I can. What people, and I, I'm going to share a big secret here. It's what people don't realize is I didn't get a whole education or a complete education because I was in and out of hospital so much Mm. and my school was very bad for sending workbooks and packages to me when I was in the hospital Mm. so you know we had one one teacher who who walked up and down our rows of beds and taught us and it was like you know even though you were sick you were expected to to learn Mm -hmm. and and I did well. I, I used to always have the workbooks complete within the first three, four days I was there because I was bored out of my mind. There was nothing really to entertain me because um, I wasn't into video games. And I, I was I was kind of in that awful stage of I'm, I didn't want to play with other Barbies because they weren't mine. And I was one of those awkward kids. Like, I was great. I could make friends really easily. But when I was sick, I just wanted to sit on my bed and watch stuff. But I couldn't watch stuff because... TVs were portable then Um, computers are now my saving grace in hospital and um, so yeah I had to kind of I just did my homework Um, and it's sad because I think a lot of the problems I have with grammar and a lot of problems I have with missing grammar is because I didn't have that full English education that I wish I had and I, I had a mother who was dyslexic and she was trying to teach me and she didn't she hadn't had a full education system either and yeah i i think it you know and when i say that i'm not saying that to gather sympathy i'm i'm saying that is a very much of i understand where my failures come from and i do the best i can to sort of fix where my downfalls are but you know you're only human and you can't have a perfect piece of writing every single time it's just you know it just doesn't always happen mm-hmm. um so yeah that's something I've never spoken about before. So yeah, there wow. you go. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's a bit weird to share that actually. But no, I feel I feel like because you know you were somebody I admired and I always wanted to write as good as you were. That sometimes when you open up and you say, "Hey, this is my fault," so it can it can make younger ra- readers and writers feel like less alone, especially if they've had health condition and they've been stuck in hospital and they've maybe not had the education that. Oh, certainly. I think it's really
1: important for writers to be transparent and not to sort of be up on a pedestal of, you know, we are above mere mortals. Um, I like to share with my audiences when I talk to school groups or writers groups, so on. I like to share with them the struggles that I've had as an author, the things that I find most difficult, because I know they're finding those things difficult, too, and it can be very heartening and encouraging to them. To know that they are not alone, even if I don't yes. have a brilliant answer to the problem of their particular flavor of writer's block, because it's the same flavor that I'm struggling with, um, mm-hmm. I can at least say you're not alone in this, and we will get through it. And yes. uh, you know, I, I think that is very valuable in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've I not had so, the too. experience that you've had with with being ill and and having a difficult, interrupted education because of that. Um, But I have sometimes as an author sort of felt the um, the sense of, well, should I have pressed through and got a university degree in English because I see other authors who have and they get, you know, many more speaking opportunities and teaching opportunities than I do because they have that credential as for yeah. me, I spent a year in university, enjoyed it thoroughly, did very well, but then said like there is no reason for me to stay. I want to be a writer and your writing is judged on your writing not on your education. So you did the I best thing, yeah. Right, so I decided I want to I want to go I want to leave school and focus on my writing and I will just work at whatever job I can turn my hand to just, you know pay mm-hmm. the bills while I'm trying to get published. So that was yeah. the road that I took but there is that sort of sense of okay well that that opened up i think some doors for me that you know earlier than would otherwise mm-hmm. have, have been open but on the other hand it also closed some other ones so we all have struggles and hurdles that we're getting over in life and ways in which it seems like other authors perhaps have an advantage um or not
0: yeah and i i because i had somebody say to me you know um, how did you find it out about your dyslexia and, and, and how you know sitting actually sitting through the dyslexia test which by the way is not a comfortable experience mm-hmm. I was like ah okay I can understand why people might ask me about this and why they might be curious about you know dyslexia and and what does that mean and all that kind of stuff. So I feel it's, I feel it's good if we talk about it because it takes the stigma away and, and it makes people feel like, as I said, not alone. And, and you're a very kind of, I think very positive person too. So if I felt like this was the right one and right podcast to share this with and, mm. and share it with somebody like you.
1: Well, thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> and I hope it's a help to your listeners as well.
0: I hope so too. Cause otherwise I'm going to feel a bit like an idiot. Um, <laughs> So what, what author do you wish you could sit and just talk to?
1: I think it would be interesting. I I mentioned her before, but Dorothy L. Sayers, um, who, for those of who are not familiar with her, uh, was a mystery author back Mm -hmm. in sort of the golden age of mysteries in the 1930s and forties. Um, and most well known for writing the Lord Peter Whimsey books, um, which are kind of literary detective fiction. But um, Sayers herself was a very, very well-educated woman whose heart was in her translations of Dante, which, again, I don't know a whole lot about, but would be interesting. I should read them, actually, one of these days. I have read her um, collection of um, essays on creativity, The Mind of the Maker, which is very good, and some of her other essays, like Are Women Human? Just brilliant. Uh, She seems like a person who had a very sharp, um, wry, uh, sense of humor, the ability to mm-hmm. sort of laugh at herself. She was also friends with C.S. Lewis, um, yes. and some of those, uh, those authors of her day, and, um, I, I just think it would be very interesting to talk to her. Now, of course, she is no longer with us, but, uh, she would have been a very interesting person to talk to.
0: Is there an author, past and present, whose influenced you in reading, writing, and made you excited about books. So you can choose three different authors for this.
1: Uh, For reading, I would say it was, um, you know, C.S. Lewis who first um, really gave me that love for fantasy through the Narnia books. And um, as far as writing goes, uh, my first big inspiration in terms of I want to write like her was Patricia Mm -hmm. McKillop, who is an American author of fantasy who writes... Beautifully poetic prose, to the extent that sometimes I was not even sure what was happening in the book. But I was just like, these words are so beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And I love her. Uh, one of her earliest works was the um, Quest of the Riddlemaster trilogy, The Riddlemaster of Head, Air uh, of Sea and Fire, and uh, Harpist in the Wind. And I read those books over and over and over again. And I would still read them again, gladly. Um, but she's just a beautiful prose stylist and writes sumptuous fantasy with... You know, humor and very strong female friendships, which was something I had not seen a lot of in the fantasy I was reading at the time, uh, which tended to be very boy centric. And Mm -hmm. especially in the second book of that trilogy, she has a wealth of wonderful female friendships that made me think like, I want to write relationships and friendships like these uh, in my books. And so she was definitely uh, a very great inspiration to me as a writer. Um, and then, um, you know, in terms of being excited about books, again, I would, I would mention Megan Will and Turner. I am a fangirl. <laughs> I have actually like joined fan sites that. for her. Yes. Um, I've actually joined fan sites for her work and chatted about it with other readers speculating about what comes next. So, um, yes, definitely her, her, uh, her books, uh, have been a, a big source of pleasure to me. Um, over the years
0: I'm, i must admit it must be truly just breathtaking for you to realize that like it, for for an author to to open up their stuff and be like oh,
1: wow
0: you know this 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 author who's renowned and who's loved by so many people is a fan of my work that that must have <laughs> just been like for for other authors it's just you know it's something that you dream about but you never expect it to happen, in mm-hmm. a way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I know I would probably cry like a you know like a baby if if somebody you know had a fan group of of my book and someone of your caliber was in there. So yeah, <laughs> but I bet that was uh, awesome for her. So if you were taken back in time, where what time would you visit? And there's a secondary question to this: is would you go back as a writer, a princess, or another job?
1: Hmm. It's a tough I, it is, well, it is and it isn't. The very easy answer would be, for the sake of research, I would love yes. to go back to 9th um, century Iceland or Scandinavia, which is kind of the basis for the fantasy world that I am currently building. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be... Very, very interesting in terms of research and would certainly help me to make my book uh, feel cool much more too. immersive and real. Um, so that would very, very be, be very interesting. And uh, in that case, I think I would like to go back as um, I would like to learn weaving and embroidery, which is not something I do. Uh, but oh, again, okay. it is a very important part of my book. And I would like to, to learn that craft, and uh, that would certainly help uh, prepare me for the story.
0: <laughs> it is so funny you say that because in Iceland, Faroe, Shetland Islands, um, weaving, sewing, embroidery, knitting, and crocheting that's, that's sort of implanted into women.
1: Yes. um
0: and it's really drummed into us i remember you know in shetland in particular there was knitting classes in primary school wow Uh, you know we were really young children with knitting needles i don't know why they thought that was such a good idea (laughs) and we were no one died i assume nobody died (laughs) no there was a a few people that got poked and
1: (laughs) smacked no one lost an eye yeah yeah
0: Yeah. no we, we weren't we weren't you know trying to kill each other but um you know we we learned to knit I could never do the crocheting crocheting Mm. you had to sort of prove yourself in math class to be able to Mm. do um and I could never keep the sequence of numbers in my head right very well which was which was um the big problem if you you Mm. know if you're easily distracted you can forget
1: right what number yes I I was all right with knitting I just never made anything beyond squares um and uh I, I I did a bit of crocheting, but again, never made anything beyond, you know, sort of a little practice strip. Uh, It didn't really take with me. I admire it greatly, but I just did not have the sort of mental discipline to just sit and knit for hours and hours. But I have friends that are beautiful knitters, beautiful crocheters, and I greatly admire their work.
0: Um, Well, for for me, my grandmother was a professional knitter when she was eight years old, from eight years old. Wow. And she was, her family business was this wool factory in Shetland. And so she really drummed into me and my cousin that we were going to be ladies. And that was, she expected us to have ladylike um, qualities. So I couldn't do the knitting. And she realized that knitting was going to be too difficult for me. Um, I could knit blankets and I could knit scarves, but that was it. And uh, so she got me sewing and embroidering and doing cross stitch, and since my viewers can't see what I'm up to, um, that is an example of my work.
1: Oh, it's lovely! Wow.
0: Um, And that's just a square, and it will become a quilt. It'll be the oh,
1: beautiful! I have a friend who makes beautiful quilts. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And and it was just it was something that was kind of i now use as a way to calm myself down because i have Mm -hmm. really bad ptsd uh Mm -hmm. from all the years of medicine and i couldn't find a way to just calm myself down when i was going to write or after writing and i started doing it again because my grandmother was old and she wanted to see that i had progressed and i was still doing it so i took it up one day and i i started it off and then i got i got really calm and i got really into it again and uh Covid really made me into it, whether I wanted it wanted to be into it or not, because I needed something to break up my day. And uh, yeah, so I I did that. And so if you ever need advice on weaving or sewing, I
1: appreciate that. I may take you free, up on that because I'm
0: uh, I I know I know so much about it, and it's it's odd because I I I don't see many books about it. You know, well I saw I saw a
1: lot it. of books where it was like the the you know the princess character or the whatever is like yeah. embroidery, and I'm like, excuse yeah. me, that is a valuable and beautiful craft. And
0: it's very good for I, for surgeons too. Funnily enough, yeah, like.
1: I, I saw I saw a lot of sort of not like other girls kind of uh, <laughs> approach yes. to you know this is how you know our heroine is spirited that she doesn't want to sit meekly, win- you know, spinning and weaving and and embroidering like the other girls and it's like yeah yeah, I mean that civilization depends upon that you know who's going to make the clothes right Mm -hmm. so I wanted to write a story where the heroine is very proud of her skill at embroidery and it is a valuable skill and it actually helps keep her alive when she would otherwise be perhaps devalued and cast aside and so that is something that that I want to emphasize in my story is the value of that work and in my the world that I'm building it's actually sacred work um it's Good. it's prayers are embroidered and when you you know you you pray as you embroider them and then afterwards you run your fingers along the embroidery and sort of repeat the prayer so yeah. it's I it's, love that that yeah. is
0: really well so. yeah that's that's a sort of kind of care and the love mm-hmm. that i think just blows people away because you do really put your blood sweat and tears into sewing mm-hmm. um sometimes literally because you stab your finger or you sew your <laughs> finger into it. I have done this recently. I actually... Yeah, it's a hanger. I took this finger and I had actually sewn the very first top layer of my skin... Oh, dear. ...onto the fabric. And then I was like, yeah. why is my finger not coming away? And then I looked underneath and I'm like, oh... <laughs> drat. Okay. And then I had to cut myself out and then I... I had actually just taken like the very first layer of skin completely off my finger.
1: Oh dear. Well, I think <laughs> so, yeah, the devaluing it, of the skill and labor that goes into making yeah. clothing and making anything that we wear or use in our homes. It's really the result of of the industrial revolution and and the, commercialization the, the, too. the commercial the fast fashion, right? When yeah, you can just go to the store and you buy something you don't think about for twenty dollars, And then Mm -hmm. you throw it out the next season. You don't understand that in past generations, clothing was extremely valuable. And it was a lot of work. And that is why people patched things. That is why people darned things. That is why people had to have the skills to remake old clothes into new ones. Because it was just so much labor that went into that. And so I think that's something that has crept into fantasy, modern fantasy, This devaluing of that labor and the lack of awareness of just how fundamental it was to cultures across the board. Um, I look, yeah,
0: and I look forward to to reading this story because I, as I said, I haven't really found ones that are excited about, you know, sewing and writing. Like, you know, the things that, if we didn't write, there wouldn't be Twitter. There wouldn't have been a Facebook. There wouldn't have been... You know these these social media sites that we can actually communicate on because guess what, writing would have just been word of mouth. Stories told to each other, you know. Yeah. So I like to hear about people that are excited uh, about these things because it keeps it going, and we mm-hmm. needed to keep going because our our lives would change forever if we didn't. Have you ever picked up a book and thought, what was I thinking? Like, (laughs) why did I start this book? Because I I know we all have one book that we've picked up and we thought, seriously, What, what, what was I thinking or not thinking when I did this?
1: Um, I would say there's kind of two categories. There's the books that I wish I had never read because they gave me nightmares, um, which would be I'm like there a, col- with you. Yep. Yeah, a collection of Stephen King short stories that I picked up in my brother's library when I was a teen and read the most horrifying short story of my life. And mm-hmm. it gave me nightmares for weeks afterwards. And I do not love horror. Um, so it was just like I so regretted that I had read that just out of curiosity. Um, so yeah, horror, anything horror, uh, would definitely be a a no-go for me. But in terms of book that I picked up thinking I would like it and then was bitterly disappointed and angry over it would be, um, there was a book that came out many years ago now. It must be 20 years ago now Mm -hmm. by an author who has probably since gone on to other things. I, I don't know of anything else that they've written. Um, but it was a continuation of a beloved children's classic novel and because I had loved the classic novel I was like oh I would like to you know read this continuation and it Mm -hmm. felt to me like the author took everything I loved about that classic children's novel and just kind of twisted it and tore it apart and you know killed off the character that I loved most had the you know the the sweet innocent girl heroine character get into an affair with some other like it was just it was sordid it was it was nasty. It, it almost read to me like somebody who'd hated the original book and thought they could, you know, sort of trash it up. <laughs> and so I kind of like read about half of it, it and then went, this way. is not yeah. getting any better. And I kind of skimmed the rest. And I just felt, after I'd, I'd read it, I was just like, oh, I just wish I could just wipe that from my brain. I, I I've seen other books that kind of, you know, took something that I loved and was like, ah, I'm going to put an adult twist on it. And it's just like, no, that never, never really ends. Yeah.
0: Don't, don't do that. Yeah. No, uh, I've had those yeah. moments as well. You know, like, I mean, I know they're rehashing or they're redoing the, um, Horse Whisperer and I'm dreading it. Cause that was my favorite. One of my favorites as a kid. um, it took me a very long time to get to the end. I never wanted to read the end because my mom had told me the end was really sad and I shouldn't read it. Um, and it wasn't until I was like 20 that I actually read the end. Cause I used to always stop at a certain spot where I knew that it wasn't going to get sad, but I kind of manned up and I read the end and I was like, oh. so, um, I hope they don't, you know change it too much and I, I think they're also doing it as a film too which I think Oof, no I think I think that's that's too rough I, I don't I don't yeah no I just think something should be left alone to be beautiful and kept that way so moving into the writing portion of the podcast how do you go about creating the darker elements in your storylines you know the darker creepier kind of edges that put them on I wouldn't edge.
1: yeah I wouldn't call myself a particularly creepy author for sure again I'm no, as horror no, course, goes I'm a wimp not. but in terms of certainly when I wrote Knife I originally wrote it as an adult novel because at the time this is pre-Harry Potter at the time I was writing it there was really no YA fantasy it went straight from right. you know what they then called juvenile so you're looking at Narnia you're looking at the Dark mm-hmm. is Rising. You're looking at, you know, uh, uh, Lloyd Alexander's Perdane Chronicles, going straight from there right up to, you know, adult authors like Stephen R. Donaldson and so on. Um, there was really nothing in between, and so it was kind of a, a, a sudden jolt when you got to be, you know, thirteen or fourteen, and you suddenly had to jump right into adult books. But mm-hmm. um, I, there is an attempted suicide in Knife, and I thought that would be very sort of heavy content. Um, for young impressionable young readers, by publisher standards, and so mm-hmm. I thought, well, it, you know, because there is a genuine romance in the book as well, which is something you didn't see in juvenile books, um, because it's a genuine romance, and because there is this suicide attempt, uh, which is thwarted, but nonetheless, uh, it is a serious part of the book, and you know, some those darker kind of elements, I thought it would have to be adult, uh, but by the time I was you know, able to actually get it published, the whole market had changed and there was publishers saying, you know, oh, no, that's not an issue. We're dealing with teen readers and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, as long as it's handled well, that's that's fine. So um, mm-hmm. I'm glad that the market changed in between those two times. But um, I would say, yeah, I, I would just say I, I write what I feel the story needs. I don't like to get into a lot of gore or a lot of uh, sort of grim, dark material, but I will go as dark as I think the story requires um, yeah. to have that necessary edge and that necessary sort of catharsis. I would say probably the darkest book I have written in terms of, of uh, that angle would be my um, paranormal thriller, Ultraviolet, um, yeah. where the heroine is uh, sent to a psychiatric hospital after confessing to the murder of the most popular girl in her high school, but the twist is she mm. claims that she disintegrated this other girl with the power of her mind, and that's why she ends up in psych hospital. Um, oh, okay. Also, there's no body. The, the the girl is missing, so they can't prove there was even a murder. So that's why that happens. So in the course of that story, I dealt with you know um, various uh, mental illnesses. I dealt with my heroine's extreme sensory sensitivity. Um where she has sort of a sensory overload attack and, uh, you know, that's very uh, traumatic for her. Um, You know, so there were certainly darker elements in that book Mm -hmm. that I had to think about and how I was going to handle them in a way that was um, suitable for the novel.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I I get that from doing sort of the darker, edge in Immortals, I had to have a... Stabbing actually in in the story, and I, because she has to die to become immortal, and I just raked myself over the coals about it for like, for weeks because I'm like, oh, I, I don't know if, you know, he has to betray her this way, she has to die to become immortal, and uh, so yeah. When it comes to darker edges, I think I think as as authors we struggle with that as, in a way because we just we don't know how to how far to take it, you know, like you try and go with the story, mm. but then.
1: You're Which I think is where a about, good editor yeah, yeah. or or, or critique partner can come in and say, mm, I think you've gone a little far with this. Uh, I think it's a little gratuitous here. Or I think you need to go harder with this. It, it just seems a little bland. It doesn't seem like you're really digging as deep as you should, and I'm not feeling it the way I should. So I think it's that's where it's a very valuable place to have feedback. And um, not so much with the darker elements, uh, but with some uh, faith elements in my stories. I wanted yes. to run... Uh, some references to faith and some conversations about spiritual things. I ran them by people uh, who have different beliefs than I do and different beliefs than the characters in the story do just to say, like, does this make sense? Is this Mm -hmm. um, offensive in any way? Is this, um, you know, uh, is this uh, something that seems overly preachy to you or perhaps not clear enough? Uh, mm-hmm. So, that, that has been certainly helpful in terms of, of just reaching out to people and getting that feedback. Do you ever get that
0: that worry that you do over preach? Like, do you ever have that sense of, I want a little bit of faith in this, and then you're like, eh, mm, I'm maybe preaching too much? Y- you have that concern rather than. Um, because, I,
1: because I never set out to write for the Christian market, although I am a Christian myself, I, I was deliberately interested in writing for the general market out of yeah. a Christian worldview, basically.
0: Yes.
1: Um, so I, I, I was familiar enough with the general market in terms of what other books uh, contained and didn't contain right. that it kind of gave me a baseline. I could see the degree to which certain authors preached their beliefs, for instance, if they were mm-hmm. atheist or agnostic or pagan. I could see the right. degree to which that came through in their novels. And I was like, well, you know, if I, if my Christianity comes through to that degree – it's fine <laughs> right and and yeah. again I, it was it was editors I, I was pleasantly surprised actually by my editors especially in writing my second book rebel um where the the one of the heroes uh it's right. uh, is a missionary's um son um he was raised uh with missionary parents in uganda which is actually where i was born and he mm-hmm. goes he comes to the uk for school and goes to a christian school that he absolutely hates and uh, has a kind of a crisis of faith in the course of the story. So faith is is very much a part of the story because he is wrestling with his faith. And do I really believe this? Do I want to keep believing yeah. this? Um, and and in the course of the story, he has some conversations with other people who have faith. So that was, that was very much part of the story. And I thought um, my editor might want me to cut it down or take it out. But actually, my editor's one was perfectly fine with it and never called me on any of it and the other just actually wanted me to clarify something a bit more and just like oh. you know my my human character and my fairy character are having a conversation and she mentions the great gardener and he talks about god and so on and the editor said to me well is the great gardener that the fairies worship god like and I'm like well mm-hmm. yes and she said well why not say that like <laughs> So yeah, I'm like, no, okay, you, you want me you? to be that clear? Sure, let's let's go for it. So yeah. I was actually pleasantly surprised that she, although not a Christian herself, was, was perfectly happy to have me clarify that. So that was a, a pleasant surprise in that regard. Um, uh, and in one of my later books, uh, I have a, a heroine who is part of a persecuted religious minority. And again, her faith is part of the books because... She has to confront the possibility that, yes, she will succeed more in her quest, which is a very important one, to prove her father's innocence of a murder, if she hides that she is part of this religious group and pretends to be part of another one. And for a right. time she does that, but she has to sort of grapple with, like, where, you know, am I going to stand up for what I believe, uh, mm-hmm. even though it could cost me um, So that is kind of a thread that runs through that book. And again, I had no problems with my editors or anything about that. I had, uh, you know, one reviewer, I think School Library Journal or one of those larger reviewers who was a bit miffed that I introduced religion into the book because wasn't she oppressed enough that she was poor and part of this, you know, hated ethnic minority without bringing religion into it as well. And it's like, well, you know, too bad for you. (laughs) It's not the book for you, but that doesn't mean it was wrong to bring it in
0: no no I, yeah. I totally agree with that and then I myself like because I am a Christian I always like wonder like I don't tell people when I when I submit because I'm I'm terrified that that's going to be something that becomes an issue or they, mm-hmm. they automatically think the book's going to be too preachy um, mm-hmm. so yeah I, t- I, I tend to not tell people that I, I am a Christian do you have that like worry that mm, I might get prejudged if they know That I'm a a Um, Christian
1: author. I, I, in a sense, I had to take my father's advice. um, Okay. That that my father, his advice to his children when we went away to university was nail your colors to the mast, which is that if up front you let people know that you're a Christian Mm -hmm. in some way by what you write or what you don't write or what you say on social media or whatever... Then that gives you sort of the courage to move forward. You've already declared yourself. You've already declared where you stand. And that was one of the reasons, actually, that I wanted to, if I got the chance, um, to to speak openly about faith in my second book. Because I'm like, I want people to know this is this is the kind of thing that you may come across in my books. And if you don't like it, stop now. Um, so, yeah. you know, that Rebel is still my most sort of overtly Christian book, but there are Christian elements, sort of. Dropped into or alluded to in my other novels as well, um, and and it seems that yeah, I mean the people that didn't want that kind of thing bailed, and that's fine. They are not the readers that I am looking for, um, but I've had some very um, encouraging feedback from other readers who appreciated that, even if they didn't share my faith. They appreciated the way that it was handled, and so uh, again, I just have to trust that that is. You know, you have to find your readers, and um, there are readers who who want that. There are, I mean, definitely preachiness is a flaw, I believe, Mm -hmm. in fiction, because fiction is not a sermon. Um, You have to find a way to communicate what you want to communicate in a uh, narrative, storytelling way. But um, at the same time, I, I think it is... It is not a bad thing to sort of let people know where you stand, and so on social media, um, I am fairly open about the fact that I am a Christian. Even a, again, I'm not preaching, but I mm-hmm. will retweet um, people who retweet, you know, have written Christian articles that I particularly liked or agreed with, and I will talk Appreciate. about it on my Instagram and so on, uh, yeah. because I, I don't want to sort of lure people in by thinking that I am not. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then no, have them shocked
1: I, I, when they yeah. discover that I am. So
0: see, I've always sort of sat on the fence and I have in a way I've been open about it, but at the same time I kind of I'm more reserved. Like I don't preach and I don't mm-hmm. do any of that stuff, but I am always aware of that sort of thin line that you kinda of have to walk. What inspired you to pick the type of, of genre for your writing that you did? Was there a specific thing that made you go, aha you know, this 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 is the genre that I'm going to write for? Or was this just something that you sort of kind of slid into?
1: I always loved fantasy from as long as I can remember. Uh, one of my earliest memories was hearing my father read The Lord of the Rings, um, The Hobbit, and uh, the Narnia series to my older brothers. Okay. And um, so that kind of awakened my love of fantasy And Mm -hmm. as soon as I had access to a library, I used to Mm -hmm. take out piles of uh, fairy tales and folk tales and legends and mythology from the library. And uh, I read all of Andrew Lang's, the Blue Fairy Book, the Red Fairy Book, all of those. And uh, so I just, I I couldn't get enough of, of myths and fairy tales. And then as I grew a little bit older, uh, I discovered, you know, the the classic sort of juvenile fantasy that were then available, uh, Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea Trilogy and so on. And uh, that, that became sort of my food all through my, my teens. I basically read exclusively fantasy and science fiction. It wasn't until I got into my 20s that I branched out to anything else. So it was very natural for me to want to write fantasy because that was what I was reading and enjoying the most. Yeah.
0: I like that. So, when you're writing, is it like a a movie in your mind, or is it like a jigsaw puzzle?
1: It used to be like a movie in my mind when I was a teenager, and I could write very quickly as a result of it because I was just describing what I saw in my head. As I grew older, and I think as I started having children, uh, which does something to your brain, legitimately, it does. um, It does. As I started having children, it was harder for me to focus that way, and I wasn't seeing the images as clearly. These days, I feel kind of like I'm tiptoeing through the fog with a flashlight and I could just see a small area in front of me and so I will describe what I see and then I just have to take another step day by day and find out where the story is going so
0: no no I get that totally it's 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 a little bit crazy because you just kind of feel like you're you're searching almost for for the for the story or it comes straight at you like a movie and you've got no choice but to write as fast as you can to kind of keep up with it. I think mm-hmm. um, I'm actually trying to have a child with my my partner, so I'm in a way a wee bit worried about how that's going to impact my writing because I love to write so much. Right. Uh-huh, so we'll we'll see how it goes. Which character would you say has stayed with you the the longest that you've written?
1: It would definitely be Martin, who is a character who appears in um five out of my six fairy world books uh i have the two trilogies the knife trilogy and then the flight and flame trilogy Mm -hmm. and he was just a two-bit fairy thug who was supposed to show up in one scene of rebel to do nothing but basically like stab my hero and take his wallet and um then he showed up again at the end of the book and showed an unexpected sort of sense of humor and i'm like oh oh um, this guy seems to want to stick around for some reason. And then he mm-hmm. showed up in the next book as a major character and had kind of a very interesting role in that story. And um, then he kind of took over the next trilogy. So telling his story and, and kind of his redemption arc, basically, from a, a, a genuine villain, uh, very opportunistic mm-hmm. and very selfish in the first uh, couple books in which he appears, To someone who has tasted the bitter fruit (laughs) of his actions and and as realizing that um, he needs to change and also unveiling his backstory uh, is is a big part of the Flight and Flame trilogy. And uh, he has lots of fangirls, um, which is very gratifying to have written a character who has like rabid fangirls. (laughs) But anyway, uh, I have I have a number of very enthusiastic readers who who just love his character, and uh, so uh, he would be the character I would say that has stuck with me the longest.
0: Yeah, there's there's always one that just hangs around and you just can't get shot yeah. of no matter how much. And you it's
1: try. not always the ones you expect.
0: No, it really isn't. Is there a character that you kind of you wish you could have written more
1: about? I did have that character, but then I wrote her a novella. So I actually have a short story collection, which I need to self-publish, and it has been, I feel badly. It's, the stories have been written for over a year, but I, because I don't know much about self-publishing and I'm very tentative about it, they're still sitting on my hard drive. But I wrote three more stories in my fairy world after I finished all of the uh, published fairy books, after I finished Torch. And one of them was a novella about this character, Thorne, who is a side character in Knife. And mm-hmm. uh, I always wanted to write a story from her point of view, but because she is an adult and not a young person, um, I thought it would be difficult or impossible to work that into the main series. But then when I just sort of wrapped my brain around the idea of writing her an adult romance novella, <laughs> I did, and I, I enjoyed that process very much. So once I get my, my act together to, to self-publish that series... I will feel like I have told, I think, all of the stories I wanted to tell about the characters in that world because she was sort of the last one that I felt really needed her own story and hadn't gotten it yet.
0: Yeah, no that that is that's really cool. I think I think that. To hear that there is characters out there that you just love, but you just haven't been able to write about kind of gives Mm -hmm. the fans something to really look forward to. So, yeah, Mm. I think that's awesome.
1: There is one story that is available to anyone who signs up for my newsletter uh, on my website, rj-anderson.com. I have a -hmm. newsletter that if anyone signs up for that, they get a free copy of the first story in that collection, which is called... um, the uninvited guest and or the Ooh. unwanted guest I can't remember which um and that one is again from an adult point of view but it it sheds light on some of the things that happened right after the end of knife so uh-huh. that is a free short story that you can get for signing up with my newsletter
0: I like <laughs> there's that. my plug for that yeah no I like that 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 is funny so what techniques have you found the most helpful and has there been ones that you just uh you wish you hadn't tried them and you
1: hadn't gone there as writing uh, is concerned I have tried many techniques Uh, one of my main frustrations as an author is that I am very slow Uh, and it Mm -hmm. seems increasingly slow as the years go by I used to be able to write thousands of words in a day now I am lucky to get hundreds so I I, I was very tempted by things like you know first draft in 30 days fast draft and so on And, Mm -hmm. you know, NaNoWriMo and and all these things that promise to get you through that first draft faster, which is always, as I said, the hardest part for me. So I tried some of those fast drafting methods, but to me, it felt like falling down a flight of stairs. And I fast drafted the first draft of Ultraviolet and I got, you know, more than 50,000 words in and I hated it. And I did not... Mm -hmm. I did not want to, to look at those words again, and I did not find them useful in any way. I just had to throw them out and kind of go back to the start. So I just, you know, came to the conclusion that that method is just of, of just putting your head down, writing fast, not editing, not thinking about what you're doing, just writing as fast as you can. It works brilliantly for some people. It is not for me. I need to ponder I need Mm -hmm. to edit my work as I go along. That is actually part of the pleasure of writing for me. They always say, don't do that. But I know I can finish things. I know I won't get caught up in editing endlessly and never finish. So I can have the luxury of editing as I go along. And feeling good about the words I've written that day um, is very important to me. So editing is a very important part of my process. So it does take time. It does mean I am a slow writer. But it does mean that I have very high quality Drafts by the time I finished, not publishable quality, but higher quality than a lot of people that just fast draft. So yeah, I am satisfied that. with that, even if it takes longer. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I for me, like I, I tried pantsing. That was my one. <laughs> Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it <laughs> yeah. at all. I totally yeah. fell apart. Um, and yeah. you know, I've I've revisited pantsing because I had this beautiful story. Um, it was a western. And it was in a notebook with 47 different novels that I planned to write. And my husband, who was moving us house, lost the notebook. So I'm uh, trying to recall it all and sort of panting my way through because I was halfway through writing one of the stories. And I'm now sort of having to to plot, pant, and plot at the same time, which is incredibly difficult. Um so yeah, I don't recommend it, it's 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 an awful thing, so let's get into your life, you know, so let's get to know RJ as herself, this is the most important part of the podcast, because it really demiss de- us as these, you know, as you said, sort of supernatural, everything's perfect, we always write perfectly, and, and you know, all those sort of myths that we live in, mansions with servants, and... Or we're antisocial trolls that never
1: leave our homes. Um. So the first thing I want, I enjoy doing uh, when I'm trying to de-stress would be go for a walk, Um, especially in the forest. I have a a nice nature trail near me. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I'm feeling stressed out and I'm creatively blocked, that is a, a thing that I do to just sort of get my mind at peace and just have a, a sort of mental reboot uh, so I go for a nature walk
0: I, I find that's really important and I, I think people necessarily don't realize that we actually do need to take that time out to just oh yeah hit pause and just clear our minds what hobbies do you do you do and what ones do you wish you had more time to explore
1: uh ho- my hobbies currently I bake sourdough bread for my family and I enjoy that that's quite relaxing I uh, watch uh, K-dramas. I I really have come to enjoy Asian dramas in the last couple of years, especially Korean dramas. I listen to (laughs) K-pop, which again is a discovery of the last couple of years. Um, Yeah, so those are the the things that I mostly do. Ones I wish I could explore. I did take a little course in embroidery, but my eyesight is kind of wonky for a variety of reasons. Um, And so threading the needles is too hard for me. It's just too stressful. (laughs) So I admire other people's clippers. embroideries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can I,
0: actually get needles that have a little Yes, uh, and I've seen them.
1: Clothes. I've seen them. Yeah.
0: But, yeah, uh, there is ways around it. Um yeah. I, I know cuz for my gran I had to do that with her. So yeah, there is ways around it. What's the first thing you do in the morning to kind of get yourself into that writing spirit?
1: When it comes to my writing sessions, um well, I exercise first because I find that gets my brain going. So I go for oh, a walk okay. on my treadmill or I go outside. And walk. Um, I do spend time in um, reading the Bible and praying. Again, that sort of calms mm-hmm. my mind and prepares me for the day. When it comes yeah. to actually sitting down with my writing, I make a big cup of tea and uh, I yeah. go and I sit down and I like to put on sort of background. I used to be able to, to write with music, um, mm-hmm. s- even with lyrics, but now I prefer like nature sounds so oh, okay. um I like to go I started with noisely and now I go to mynoise.net mm-hmm. which has a vast assortment of sort of noise landscapes and uh so I'll put on like autumn walk or you know depending something that fits with the mood of my story I can even create ones that sort of have the sounds that I imagine in my story um and that I will just have that in the background going as I write and I find that calms me it quiets my inner editor uh, so yeah. that I can write more freely. Um, yeah. So that's helpful to me.
0: So what do you look forward to the most with your writing? You know, what sort of dream have you yet to achieve that you long long to with it?
1: You know, to me, the main thing was being able to walk into a bookstore, see my book on the shelf, and to be able to meet readers and other authors. And I have realized all three of those dreams in various ways. There are still authors I would enjoy meeting. But um, of just... I've been able to to enjoy that and have that experience. And so those are the main things for me. I think there are you know, of course it would be lovely to win a major award. I have been shortlisted and a finalist for a number of lovely awards, but never like won a big one. Um that would be nice, but I also know a lot about the process that goes into selecting people for these awards and it's not always yeah. what the best book is. So no. um I, I feel like that is less of a validation than um it used to be for me, um, yeah. but it would still be nice. It would be good for the sales of the book for sure.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, it, it is very helpful. I myself have a long-term illness that makes me slow down and appreciate the day. What makes you slow down and smell the roses?
1: Um, I would say just the awareness that being a writer is not ultimately the most important thing about me, even if it is an important part of my life. It is not my full identity. And if tomorrow I was suddenly stricken with, you know, severe brain fog, I mean, now I have mild brain fog, but if it was too severe that I was not able to write, I would not lose my worth as a person, or I would not lose my ability to have a meaningful effect on other people's lives or the world around me. Um, yes. I think that helps keep everything in perspective when I'm tempted to freak out over my writing career or where it's going or not yeah. going. Uh, it yeah. just helps me to remind remember that I am more than my writing. Yeah,
0: that's, that's very, very true. So where's your favorite place to curl up during the day? Is it like a garden? Do you have a cafe or a reader's nook that you like to go to?
1: Really not. I mean, I, I have, sometimes I go to write at a cafe just for a change of pace Um, but I don't have like one specific place. I have, I have the place in my bedroom, the corner of my bedroom where I write. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I sit on the couch in the living room, but it's not sort of this special dedicated creative space that I would love to have, but has just never worked out. And that's fine because, I mean, there are authors who have these beautiful creative spaces and it's very easy to look at them and envy them and feel like, oh, if I only had a space like that, I could write wonderful books. Um, yeah. And the truth is, you don't need it. I wrote, you know, a good chunk of my books sitting next to my bedroom window with like a TV table. So, you know, that's a thing. So it, it's, it's lovely to have that, but it's not essential to being a writer. And, and I just I want to say that to encourage people like myself who just don't have that because they're writing in a tiny little flat or, or they've got kids running around all over the place or whatever it may be. Yeah. You don't have to have that to, to be a good writer.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I, I totally get that. It's it's just sometimes super frustrating, you know, because you feel like, oh, I need that space to sit and read. I particularly myself, I've, I'm almost trying to find somewhere in the house that's just mine and I can read there. And it's not going to happen because we stay in a two-bedroom small flat. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important thing to say is that, you know, a good reader's nook is not the be-all or end-all of... of Yeah, of of being happy and just reading. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on today because RJ has um, been an amazing guest. We are skipping the word game this week, um, but it has been truly amazing to have you on. Please, please come back uh, (laughs) when you've got your next release because it has been a lovely conversation with you. And I think we've touched on a lot of things I think will help a lot of people. So, Yeah, please feel free to come back, and it's always an open door. You can hit me up on any social media or just send me an email.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's been a pleasure.